I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Angel Shang. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 10th, 2019. Coming up, we revisit the long-term study of adolescent brains by CU Professor Marie Banach to find out what she's learned in her first four years. Like this? Oh, okay, I was like this. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Selective CO2 capture, how to get those costs down. Most people in energy research believe that carbon capture and storage needs to be a significant part of any plan that addresses climate change. Reducing CO2 emissions by capturing CO2 at the point source is used in some industries, and it continues to be an active area of research. The captured CO2 is sequestered, stored deep underground in geologic formations, or used to create new chemicals. Getting the cost down is an important goal for CO2 capture. The estimated cost of carbon capture is about $60 per metric ton for coal-fired plants or about $70 for natural gas plants. Another $11 would go for transporting and storing this. The cost of carbon capture systems at facilities producing things like ethanol or fertilizer is cheaper, about $9 to $30 per ton. Carbon capture isn't as expensive for ethanol or fertilizer because these processes result in higher concentrations of the gas. On the other hand, carbon capture costs for cement or steel production, two of the biggest industrial emitters, those are closer to $100 per ton. In general, the more dilute the CO2 concentration at your smokestack, the more expensive it is to remove it. So the perfect material would have a very high selectivity for CO2. This would allow it to be used in point sources that have more dilute CO2 emissions, but still contribute a lot of CO2 to the atmosphere. The perfect material would also be inexpensive to make and process into components that could be used at point sources. Zeolites have been studied for their ability to absorb CO2. Zeolites are crystalline microporous aluminosilicates, and they have cavities, tiny cavities, that allow for the capture of small molecules. They can be adjusted or tuned to the very specific size of CO2. Zeolites have been around forever, but they do have some some limitations for this use. Zeolites are a crystalline powder, and when that powder is combined with the binders or adhesives you need to make the material for application, these pores become blocked and adsorption capacity is reduced. Researchers from Sweden have created new bio-based foams made from gelatin and microcellulose. These foams have very low density, low cost, and an ability to achieve very high loadings of zeolites, up to 90%, all while preserving their selectivity and ability to absorb CO2. The foams are easy to prepare and allow for fast diffusion of emissions through them. This work was published in Applied Materials and Interfaces in October from Stockholm and Chalmers University in Sweden. Now imagine a future where this type of carbon capture technology is used with biomass as the fuel. Since the biomass fuel is carbon neutral, removing carbon would result in net negative CO2 emissions, meaning we aren't just carbon neutral, we would be removing carbon from the atmosphere. 
Maybe you've heard some of the ideas coming out over the past few years about domestication in animals like dogs and cats. Basically, domestication encompasses genetic changes that arise as a species is bred to be friendlier and less aggressive. In dogs and domesticated foxes, there are a lot of physical changes that go together with domestication. They get smaller teeth and skulls, floppy ears, and shorter, curlier tails. These changes result from a decrease in a type of stem cell called a neural crest stem cell. New research suggests that we humans imposed the same process of domestication on ourselves. Modern humans are less aggressive and more cooperative than many of our primate ancestors. We too show similar physical changes as other domesticated animals. For example, smaller skulls and brow ridges. A group of European scientists decided to explore the idea of genes in domestication. They based their research on the fact that one gene, called BAZ1B, plays an important role in the movement of neural crest cells. Most of us have the usual two copies of this gene, but people with an inherited disease called Williams-Buren syndrome have just one copy of BAZ1B. People with this disease have cognitive impairments, smaller skulls, small facial features, and they're very friendly. To learn whether the gene BAZ1B determines those facial changes, the scientists grew lines of neural crest stem cells from 11 different people. They basically took cells from each person and grew them separately. There were four people with Williams-Buren syndrome, remember they're missing one copy of the gene, three people with a related disorder that is caused by an extra gene, so they would have three copies, and then four from unaffected people that have two normal copies of the gene. Then, in each separate cell line, they modified the gene's activity. This design means they can determine what effect the activity of BAZ1B has on stem cell behavior. Overall, turning down BAZ1B produced the distinct facial features of people with Williams-Buren syndrome, establishing the gene as an important driver of facial appearance. And tweaking the gene affected hundreds of other genes known to be involved in facial and cranial development. When the researchers looked at those sensitive genes in modern humans and some of our hominid ancestors, they found that in modern humans, those genes had many mutations. This indicates major changes between us and Neanderthals and Denisovans, the hominids examined in the study and our last recent living relatives. Because many of these genes have also changed during domestication in animals, these results suggest that we too have recently been domesticated. As for why humans might have become domesticated in the first place, there are plenty of hypotheses. One popular idea is that as we formed cooperative societies, evolutionary pressures favored mates whose features were less aggressive. Alternatively, because our ancestors were group hunters and foragers, any genetic changes that favored cooperative behavior would have been favored. This study was published last week in Science Advances. This is Marie Banish, and she is the director of the executive director of the Neuroimaging Institute at the University of Colorado Boulder. And we last talked almost four years ago, I can't believe it's been that long, when you got a big, very prestigious grant from NIH to study adolescent brain development. So we're going to check in and see how things are going, but let's refresh 
everyone's memory, mine included, and tell us what this study is meant to do. Well, the study is the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study. And it's a landmark study that is going to be following over 11,000 children for 10 years to understand the influences on brain development. When we got that award four years ago, uh, the award was actually given to 21 different sites across the country because to test 11,000 children, you clearly can't do that just at one place. Um, So the first year of the study was really, we spent our time talking as a collective group, we were all thrown together, trying to figure out what was the best way to get a handle on adolescent brain development. Um, And also, we started thinking about what were the potential influences on adolescent brain development. Um, The initial study, as conceptualized by the National Institute of Health was relatively limited in in scope. It was really focused on, in some sense, getting a picture of how the brain develops during adolescence. Um, But more and more portions of the National Institute of Health heard about the study, and they had questions that they wanted answered as well. So the study really morphed into a much larger study to look not just at brain development, but all the things that might influence it. Uh, That sounds like uh, the everything study. In part, it is an everything study. Uh, We're getting an amazing amount of information uh, on these children. So at its core, we are looking at brain anatomy, So it would be like looking at the structure of a car. We're also getting brain function when we give children a mental challenge. What parts of the brain rev up? You know, does the engine rev up? Um, But it really has become clear that there are many influences on brain development. So let me give you some idea of the rich information that we're gathering on on the children. So, And just before we get into the information you're getting, for the listeners, um, I just want to clarify that for a long time, people thought adolescent brains were kind of static, right? And that um, a lot of the development had kind of finished in childhood. But with the advent of the kind of imaging that you use with um, functional MRI, which we should define for the listeners, also, it became known, um, I'm guessing like maybe 10 to 15 years ago, that um, brain development continued all through the teen years and into the 20s. Yes, that's true. So before brain imaging really became a tool that scientists could use, the assumption was that by 16 or 17, the brain was fully developed. And that assumption was based on findings that basically the brain is about adult size by 16 or 17. So scientists figured, okay, not much interesting going on. But with brain imaging, we could start to look more carefully at actually the structure of the brain and what parts became active. And now we know that this developmental trajectory really goes past the mid-teen years up into the early 20s. 
And so you use this MRI, and I'm, I'm guessing that many of the listeners have been in an MRI machine because the technology has really gotten less expensive in the last five years. But you do something a little different. You don't just look, well, you do some anatomy with it, but you also look at function. So could you briefly explain how that works? Surely. Uh, what we do is we take advantage of the fact that oxygenated and deoxygenated blood have different magnetic properties. So we can pick that up in an MRI machine. And in addition, what happens is that an area of the brain that's working particularly hard during a given task needs a lot of oxygen. So we can pick up essentially the fact that certain areas of the brain are saying, hey, give me a lot of oxygen right now. So, for example, we know that different functions are localized in different parts of the brain. I'm talking to you right now, and there's a portion of my brain up towards the front on the, my left hemisphere that I am sure is pulling in more oxygen <laughs> than other regions of the brain. So what we can do then is we can give children or adults particular challenges. We can give them a task where they have to pay attention, or we can have them uh, look at faces with emotional expressions, or we can have them make decisions. And while they are in the magnet actually doing these tasks, we can get information on what parts of the brain are, are revving up to help people do those tasks. So in your study, you are looking at a spectrum of different ages of children and asking them to do certain tasks. And then you're interested in a variety of environmental influences that can influence brain development. And so how do you, um, how do you insert those different environmental influences into this study? Well, one of the unique things about this study is what we call, it's a longitudinal study. And what that means is that we are going to be following these 10,000 children for 10 years. So what we can do is look at the trajectory of how their brain develops. And that's really critical. Now, the, we have across the 21 sites, have our group of, of 10,000 individuals. And what we did at, at baseline uh, was to collect all sorts of information about them. And at, they were at age nine, either nine or 10. Now, why did we pick nine or 10 for our baseline? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's before uh, hormones start wrecking havoc with their emotional lives. Um, and it's also uh, before a lot of them have had experiences with uh, drugs or alcohol. Um, it's before a lot of the social pressures start to increase. So what we wanted to do was basically get a baseline measure of brain and behavior across all these children. And then the idea is we could follow them and we could see which of them excelled at learning, who was having trouble, which of them uh, started to um, use substances or things of that nature. So then we could see how those different factors affected or affects brain development. The measures we get are really quite varied. Um, we get a full battery that looks at their range of mental abilities, their verbal abilities, their spatial abilities, their ability to pay attention. 
Uh, we get information on their mood and their emotional functioning. Um, do they feel sad? Are they happy? Uh, we also get information on their social group. Uh, do they have a big group of friends? Uh, things of, of, of that nature. Uh, we are collecting information with fit from Fitbits, so we're getting information on how much they exercise and um, how much they sleep. Uh, we also, I think one of the most unusual measures we're obtaining, uh, we're really appreciative of the parents helping us out on this, we're actually collecting baby teeth. And the reason why for parents who save, saved baby teeth, we're getting that information, is it tells us about uh, issues of exposure, for example, to metals and lead. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're getting um, saliva so that we can get uh, information on, on DNA. And the reason really we can do all of this, this sounds like a, a, a lot of information, and it is, um, with even without the brain imaging data, we're getting 44,000 different pieces of information on each child. And the reason why we can get it is because the families are very cooperative, and the children basically uh, come here and uh, work with us for a day, eight hours, long day, uh, to collect all this information. Wow, that is amazing. And this is, um, I saw on your website, this is the largest study of its kind ever attempted. This is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's really a groundbreaking study. So when you get this data, do you, um, I'm assuming you probably get all the same measures on all the children, but then do you go back and do you fine tune things so that, for instance, if you see some kids that have been doing, let's say, some kind of substance abuse like alcohol, I know that there's the possibility for anatomical damage with binge drinking in adolescence. Do you go back and look at um, those kinds of issues? We will in the future. Right now we're just looking at 9- and 10-year-olds Oh, okay. Uh, for the first time point. Uh, and at, at this point, one of the reasons why we started with 9- to 10-year-olds is that less than 1% of them um, have actually right, had right. experiences with any substances. But the idea is that in the future we will be able to look at those children who might experiment early in the teen years versus those who experiment later and uh, also look at the amount that uh, they've in ingested and, and things of, of that nature. So we, we hope to see these, these different influences on the brain and on behavior. The, to get this full sample uh, really took us two years of the study to get 11,000 uh, children. So uh, the first year was spent figuring out how we were going to ask our questions, and the next two years were spent uh, collecting all the data. So we've got our first time point now all collected. And part of what we're doing as scientists is really making sure that the data quality is good. So, for example, if during a task uh, a child didn't press the button, is that because they were confused or they had zoned out? Uh, so one of the things as scientists, not only do we collect the data, but we also are doing quality control. Uh, and that's very important because one of the unique aspects of this study is that the National Institute of Health is making this data publicly available to scientists all over the world. 
um, so that it's not just the scientists who are involved in collecting the data who will be able to look at it and answer questions, but basically scientists all across the globe. Yeah, that's a fantastic resource. And will you have genomic data? You said you were collecting DNA from um, saliva. Will you have sequence data or will it be more limited to, to um, isolated little markers spread across the genome? We uh, hope to have uh, basically genome-wide data. Uh, we will be getting blood samples from uh, some of the participants who've, who've agreed to that. Now, one of the things that we're doing here at, at Colorado that's a unique part of the study is we, along with three other sites, are specifically testing twins. And the reason why we're doing this is that uh, we know that uh, identical twins share all their genetic information whereas non-identical twins only share half of their genetic information. So what that allows us to do is we can see then by looking at how similar the behaviors are in identical twins versus non-identical twins um, is the degree to which some of the effects on the brain and behavior may be influenced by genetics. Um, so we're very excited about uh, that. And so are you collecting, as this study goes on, well, I guess you've already sampled a number of individuals. How many have you already sampled, by the way? Uh, how many nine-year-olds did, or nine- and ten-year-olds did you start with? So across the entire study, <clears throat> we have over 11,000 children. Here in Colorado, it's a little over 550. Okay. So that's a pretty big group of kids to be testing on all these um, factors. It's a huge number of children to be testing on all these factors. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a big-time operation. Yeah. And I, I must say it's been uh, a pleasure to see how well scientists from all these different universities across the country have managed to play together so well. It's, it's been a unique experience. Oh, that's, that's wonderful to hear because that doesn't always happen, for sure. So tell us about some of the... Um, the interesting environmental factors. I saw on your website that you're looking at things like sleep, and here's something that I'm sure all parents are going to be intrigued by is screen time. Yes. <laughs> so so um, there, there are a number of interesting findings that are starting to uh, come out. So uh, Jeff Lessam, a research associate here at the University of Colorado, is interested in the issue of, of screen time and uh, basically found what you might expect, uh, that those children who have higher screen time uh, sleep less um, and that it's mainly not for girls, but for boys, higher screen time is associated with uh, less physical activity. That's interesting. Um, That's not true of girls. No, it's not. It's not true. It's not true of girls. And then Deanna Barch, uh, one of the other researchers at the uh, Washington University in St. Louis, then found that those boys who are involved in sports had fewer symptoms of depression. So more screen time, less exercise, um, which means that you know it may not be as good for a child's mental health to be having. Uh, a lot of screen time. Uh, the boys uh, tended to spend tend to spend more time playing video games than the girls. Mm, right. um, so that's they have more screen time in general, and and that what that's what seems to um, 
account right. for uh, the differences. Um, another interesting finding, Megan Ross, who's a postdoctoral associate here at the University of Colorado, wanted to see what children know about substances like cannabis and alcohol and if that uh, predicts, for example, them acting out. Um, so the good news for parents is that uh, if your 9- or 10-year-old child starts talking to you about marijuana or alcohol, um, you don't necessarily have to be worried that they know about that because they're experimenting with it. Actually, um, Megan found that uh, there's no relationship between how much children know about alcohol and marijuana and the degree to which they're interested in trying it. So... I think that's a, a little, uh, I think that's good for parents uh, yeah. to know. Yeah, but it's also encouraging that they know about what's happening in the big world around them. And the more information kids have, the better prepared they are to deal with it. So I'm encouraged to hear that. Yeah. Um, so there, there are interesting things like that that we're uh, finding. Uh, some other people are looking at um, issues related to, we have a variety of, of children from basically states from coast to coast. Uh, we have children from rural environments and city environments, higher socioeconomic and lower socioeconomic status. And some of the initial findings are suggesting that, uh, for example, children in uh, areas with lower socioeconomic status um, may have uh, smaller brain regions, an area called the hippocampus, um, that's involved in memory. Um, this is, I think, interesting information because we know that the brain is particularly adaptable uh, during this time, more so than we thought previously. So this may provide some impetus to think of, the, of ways that we might try to boost those memory regions in the brain in children who don't come from uh, as advantaged backgrounds as others. Um, so I think that this, these data may help really both scientists and I, I think public policymakers think about where are the push points where we can make a difference to really optimize the chance for every child to um, live up to her or his potential. Right. That's fantastic. Well, that was Professor Marie Banish describing her work with adolescents and how drug use can affect the development of important brain regions involved in their decision-making and judgment. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show is produced and engineered by me, Beth Bennett. Additional contributions by my co-host, Anjao Shang. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Claude Debussy. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGN Science Show, I'm Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett.